I just wanted to um, read out some things to you. Um, I'm part of a leadership team here of seven um, and a, a big band of loads of other amazing people. And we, we, we grow a sense of team and family here. So we're all in it together. So um, you've already heard one little message from Andy and Teresa and Luke and Jan who are serving the church in Paris. Um, but I have a letter here that was sent to you all um, from a gentleman who was here a few weeks ago. His name was Richard. Um, he came and um, came to see how we'd gone through amazing transition of a church of a certain model pursuing certain things to a church of a different model pursuing other things. And he really blessed us when he shared on the Sunday morning. But we had this letter. He encourages me because he, he forgot a few things. So he sent us this letter. He said, Dear Nick and Jan and Hope Church, we wanted to email and say that it was great to meet you all and spend time with you last weekend, two weeks ago. Um, and we appreciated your honesty and your openness and your warm, welcoming church very much. Thank you, too, for the Keep Your Love On book by Danny Silk. Looking forward to reading it and after finishing the second read of Pete Carter's book, Unwrapping Lazarus. I'm mentioning this because these are good things for you to read, too. Um, one other thing. I got distracted by other things at the start of my preach, and I forgot to say what I meant to. So, if you have the chance, could you please convey to Hope Church Glasgow that Andy and Teresa's visits to us in Hope at Worcester Church we've, have been really very, very helpful over the last few years. Our church would not have had the variety of ministry or the teamwork it enjoys without Andy's help at a critical time. Debbie and I value our friendship with them very much and want to thank the church, that's you, for supporting them in their ministry and releasing them to fulfill their call. Cheers. Our love to you all, Richard and Debbie. So it's just really important that you hear that, that um, we have been on a, what feels like a very uncomfortable, fun, crazy journey over recent years. And sometimes we miss, we miss Andy and Teresa when they're not here, don't we? Um, they are very, very precious to us and very special, but they're part of a team and part of a family. And our heart as a family here really is, it's not just for a, a holy jolly that we all have a happy time here, but actually it's a releasing, sharing thing that we're on. And we just want to, we, we don't have it all sorted by a long stretch of the imagination, but we're just really keen to share some of the things we've learned, some of the breakthroughs that we've had, and, and just a, a real give it away culture. So, there are lots of people far and wide who are really grateful for the shared journey that we've all been on and a willingness to not stay in a rut and not stay comfortable, but actually to look deep within and, and, and respond to what God is doing, even though we haven't got it nailed down. So I just wanted to really encourage you with that. So uh, I am a bit of an insatiable reader. I love people. I love hearing people's stories. And uh, I'm always, I always feel I get really blessed listening to what other people say. So I want to read you a couple of snippets from things that I've come across this week. So how many of you are Facebookers? A smattering, not as many as I thought. Well, um, please don't kill me for sharing this, but I just loved it so much. I felt I had to sort of share it with a wider audience. And as you're not all on Facebook, you might not have heard this. So I um, read this great thing called, What Would Jesus Do? Do you really want to know? The chuckles are from the ones who've already read it, so they know what's coming. I'm going to read it anyway. Once upon a time, a mother made her son a wristband. On it was written, WWJD. This, of course, stood for what would Jesus do? She instructed her son to look at the wristband before making decisions on how to live his Christian life. A week later, she was shocked to see her son had become friends with prostitutes, was hanging out with sinners, even buying people who were already drunk yet another round of beers. <laughs> Worse still, he had walked into their church the previous Sunday, he'd torn down the bookstore, overturned the tables and threw the cash register through the window. He then made a whip and chased the pastor out of the building, declaring he was turning God's house into a den of thieves. Most shocking was what happened when his mother went to picket the local abortion clinic. To her embarrassment, her son was also there. But he was standing with the women who'd just had an abortion and yelled at the protesters, you who are without a sin, throw the first stone. 
The mother was terribly distressed, but fortunately she found a solution to this terrible problem. She made another wristband. This time it read WWAPD. This, she explained to her son, stood for, what would a Pharisee do? She took the old WWJD wristband and burned it. Since her son has been wearing the new wristband, looking at it to help him make his decisions, he has become a dedicated tither, a public prayer warrior, an active condemner of sinners, a passionate defender of the old covenant law, and has a great reputation as a godly young man amongst other religious people. Needless to say, the mother is very happy now. She only wishes Jesus would take notice and follow her son's good example. <laughs> Controversial, hey, what? <laughs> Never known to be uh, a totally peaceful person. Another little funny story is uh, something that uh, I loved. Uh, children just really bless me, and we've been blessed with two little grandsons in the past year and a tiny bit, and uh, I can't actually believe how quickly that's happened in my life. It just seems two seconds ago that I was chasing my own now six-foot-plus boys around in the shape of little Zion, who's been around this morning. Um, but this little story I loved. How can I tell if my relationship with Jesus is the way I or he wants it to be? A little girl was on her way home from church and turned to her mom and said, Mommy, the preacher's sermon this morning really confused me. And the mom said, Oh, why is that? The girl replied, well, he said that God is bigger than we are. Is that true? Yes, that's true, the mother replied. He also said that God lives within us. Is that true too? And again, the mother replied, yes. Well, said the little girl, if God is bigger than us and he lives in us, wouldn't he be showing through? I just loved it. So I just wanted to share those with you. So if, you're, if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, you'll remember those, won't you? So what I wanted to this morning really was just encourage you with your own personal journey with Jesus and with each other um, and share some of the things that I have learned and I'm still learning on my journey because the second I think I've almost got it nailed, something else opens up and I realize I'm still learning and long may it continue. I had the real pleasure yesterday of meeting um, a really elderly couple, Morris's mum and dad, who were up for celebration, Thanksgiving for some of the babies. So some of our Southside parents' families had a, a Thanksgiving and dedication party and the families came. And Morris's parents, your dad is 90... 90, and had driven up from the Cumbrian border, as you do at 90, and just listening to him talk, I'm just aware that older people who've walked with the Lord for a long time can share things from a perspective that I'm not going to find until I'm there. So there's such a source of getting things into a perspective when you're young or younger or like where I am right now, I still feel like I'm trying to get the right perspective. So I just want to urge you to get hold of older people and suck the, the riches out of them because they, they've just got a real perspective that can really help us and really bless us. So this is kind of what this is about, really. So I've kind of put a little mini title called thinking and living like Jesus, or following in Jesus' footsteps. Um, and it may have come to your notice that you have got things going on in your head all of the time. Would that be right? We've all got something. I came across another little story, which I just have to tell you. So, because um, they just illustrate this point so well, that your head is full of something, whether you're aware of it or not. So imagine, where's Phil? I don't know if he's here. Um, I resisted the, the temptation of putting his name in this. But now that I've told you, you know. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. So, during a long and very tedious rugby match of an under-15s team, the restless boys that were on the reserve bench, they were being absolutely thrashed. And they had a junior coach someone who was like from the under-18s team, and they had a big boss coach, okay? And um, their young adult 
Scott, the young coach, was sat with these guys. And this match was not going well at all. And, um, and the boys were really losing focus, and they were just chatting to Scott as it went along. And uh, the conversation was nothing to do with rugby. In fact, the thing that was coming out was what was most prevalent on their mind, which was Scott's rather hot sister. <laughs> and um, so the banter was going on about the hot sister. And does she have a boyfriend? Is she going out with anybody? And what does she like to do? And uh, the main man coach was getting a little bit fed up with this, at which point he shouted over to them, if you're going to talk about anything during this match, could you please talk about rugby? So the boys just shut up, stone silence, and a minute and a minute and a half passed. And then a little voice piped up, Scott, does your sister like rugby? (laughs) So I just... I think that kind of highlights it, really, that there's something running and predominant. It, it just motivates your whole thinking. What you're supposed to be thinking about, the thing that's really going on in your, in your headspace is the thing that really matters. So I just quite like that. So. so I wonder what the disciples' heads and minds were full of when Jesus rocked up. Um, I had a little look And I am not a theologian. I do apologize for that slight lack in my life. But I did have a little look at these 12 disciples. So there was Andrew. He was apparently a fisherman. And Bartholomew and Nathaniel, they think, the scholars, the clever people, say that they think he was probably um, someone of noble birth, had come from a royal bloodline. There was James. He was a fisherman. There was John. He was a fisherman. There was Judas. Sadly, the only title he's got is he was a traitor. Then there was the brothers, James and Jude, and there's not a great deal known about them. And Matthew, who was a publican or a tax collector. And then there was Simon Peter. He was another fisherman. And Philip, he was a fisherman too. And then there was Simon the Zealot and the Canaanite. And then there was Thomas, that we don't know a great deal about, but he was very busy questioning everything. And when I've looked at the disciples, I think, I wonder which one I'm the most like. And I've come up with, I think I was probably quite like Thomas. Because I wanted to be sure. And I'm always asking questions, and I like to know. And I want to be convinced. And I want clever people to help me sort it out. So that was a mixed bunch of people to choose to hang about with, is it not? And, uh, and to throw it all in, Jesus was a carpenter. So just looking at what the, their background was, what the point that Jesus met with them, you can begin to imagine what was the focus of their thinking, what was their head full of, so fishing tactics, whatever those are, and uh, how to get the most money out of the people who really should be paying it, and a few other things, but they were a really mixed bag. But their heads would have been full of something when Jesus rocked up. And he chose to hang out with those guys, and he poured absolutely everything he had out into those 12 people, into their minds, into their souls, hearts, bodies, spirits. Had this thought, I wonder if any of the disciples ever had a cold or a headache or backache. You don't actually read about that in the Gospels, do you? But do you think any of them were ever sick? Because actually, when you read the Bible, it says wherever Jesus was, healing was. And I haven't bottomed that one out completely, but I suspect that Jesus was a pretty decent person to hang around if you're not feeling very well. Anyway, so establishing the fact that the disciples definitely had a preset way of thinking or a focus or a preoccupation. Um, They were all about something, each of them. And I think that would be representative of all of us, would it not? We're all somewhere. We've all got our heads full of something. We're all at different stages of life. We've all got different things that are pressing in on us that are demanding our physical efforts, our mental agility, our emotional investment. And I just want to say to you, I've got a little card on my um, office notice board. It It just says, begin anywhere. And this morning, I just want you to say to you, it doesn't matter where you're at, you can begin anywhere, and you can begin today in this journey of allowing Jesus just to throw in what he's all about. So 
the disciples were all exposed to something very tangible and very real while they were hanging around with Jesus. He took them through a process and an, an experience over a number of years, and it affected them in absolutely every way. And if you want to find out more about that, I suggest in your daily reading plan that you start reading the Gospels just to say, what, what was it like? What were they exposed to? How did it affect them? And try and put yourself in that story. What would the disciples have made of this alien man called Jesus? The way he lived, the way he viewed the world, the way he treated women, the way he treated other social classes or races. He was Jewish. I stay in Gifnik. We have some really precious Jewish neighbors and quite a few of them. And I keep looking at them thinking, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was like you. Jesus had these frames of reference. And try to remember that when I'm reading things that I'm reading in the gospel. So the disciples would have found him quite shocking. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Even the way he prayed, the way he invited Father God into his relationship, and the way he allowed the disciples to see what that looked like. He modeled something that was very, very different to anybody who was around him at the time. He challenged behavior. He, he behaved from a completely different paradigm. And he taught the disciples how to pray. And I wonder how many of you would like to pray with me now. If I start, will you join me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. He taught them how to pray that prayer. And that prayer was a very different kind of prayer to the prayers that they would have been praying at the time. So Jesus allowed his disciples in on the way he prayed. He allowed them in to a paradigm that was very different to the one they had. And so Jesus really was the real deal for anybody who hung around with him. And Jesus' identity was very, very secure because he was praying, our Father, my Father. And he prayed lots of other things as you just have. His connection with Father God was constant and the presence of the Holy Spirit was indwelling with him. If you're not sure about that, you might like to have a look at Matthew 3, 15, when he was being baptized, Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist. And Jesus had answered, let it be so now, for it's proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented to baptism. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Nick Hall, I love you. You do an amazing job. He modeled, Jesus modeled as well to his disciples what it looked like to struggle and wrestle with things that were difficult for him. That might shock you. Do you think that Jesus found everything easy? I don't think he did. Was he challenged in his everyday? I don't think he did. I think he found it really quite difficult. But he modeled to the people that were close to him what it looked like to um, bring his thoughts and his feelings to his father and make those obedient to his kingdom rule. He didn't allow any thought to rule in his head or his heart that his father didn't have in his. He struggled the night before he was arrested, didn't he? Luke 22, 39, Nick. <laughs> he didn't hide the reality of what was going on in his thoughts and feelings. So Luke 22, 39, it says... Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. This was a usual activity for him, and the disciples followed him. That was probably usual too. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you won't fall into temptation. It was a line out of that prayer that he'd already taught them. And he withdrew about a stone's throw away, so it wasn't far away, they could see. 
He withdrew a throne stones away beyond them, and he knelt and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Another line from that prayer. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. It's another line of that prayer. Do you think Jesus struggled? Do you think he found it difficult? I think he did. But what was the result of these 12 guys hanging around Jesus for three years? 11 of them, we are absolutely convinced, and we know, historically speaking, that they were completely, completely transformed from the men they had been when Jesus first met them. Utterly, to the very core of their being, they were not preoccupied with fishing tactics. They were not preoccupied with getting the money that they were supposed to be paid. They were not preoccupied with the things that had been filling their heads and motivating their actions. They were totally transformed. Even Judas, it's difficult to know about him, but he was so overwhelmed by what he'd done. It's hard to know what his connection with Father God was like, and it might have been very clouded with guilt. We don't know. And he might have been clouded with emotion. He might have been completely overcome by what he had done. And he may not have had the knowledge of knowing how to put things right after he had betrayed Jesus. It's so easy to be judgmental, but the truth is we don't know. You don't know. We really don't know. And the solution that he took to take his own life perhaps wasn't the best one, and I don't believe it was really what Father God would have wanted, or Jesus for that matter. But that's what he did. But the other 11 went on to live very, very different lives with a very, very different focus and a very, very different um, preoccupation. They became world changers. And the fruit of what they did has, it can be marked through history. 12, well, 11 men that were left and all the others that were around. The effects that they had with their lives as a result of being transformed has it's gone right through history, and it's affecting us today, is it not? They experienced something that was very different to the reality, to the one that they had previously known or experienced. I'm kind of clutching this book, thinking I'm going to wave this at you for long, but I'll just get rid of it. This is a book that I'm really loving, Reach, and it's to do with how it's called um, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and it's just looking at this culture. When Jesus walked the planet, so when we read the Gospels, we're reading it with... The culture that we understand, our Western culture, how things are today. But this is an insight to what the Jesus factor would have been at that time in that culture. So I found that quite interesting. So I just thought I was going to mention it. I'll put it down. Um, so here are these 11 men who have been completely transformed in their minds, which is then affecting the way that they live and the choices they make. Napoleon said, the object of war is victory, and the object of victory is occupation. And that's true. But the object of occupation is transformation. And as believers, we're accustomed to victories without the occupation or without the transformation. It's important to realize that the power of God displaces the powers of darkness, but it's the government of God that replaces the ruling powers of that darkness. So it's not enough just to look for victory. It comes from a transformed place on the inside. Now, transformation is a process. It's not an overnight wonder. Shucks. And it has its foundations firmly rooted in the cross, in Jesus, in his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That is where the root is. Everything about this process is rooted in there. So where are you on this process? Where am I on this process and on this journey? And today, I just want to give you permission to be okay with your journey. Not to be feeling guilty or a failure or putting yourself under pressure or allowing yourself to come under pressure from other people who say you should be looking like this. You should behave like that. You should know that. You should respond this way. This is what you should be doing. 
My lovely husband, many, many years ago, told me that should is a swear word. I can't actually hear the word without hearing. Should is a swear word. Not because it is a swear word, but because beneath it is a nasty, accusatory, something that's not coming from the Father. Because what Father wants from me is a response from a love affair. There's no should about it. He loves me. He's right in front of me. I want to. There's no should about it. So just be aware of that one. So I want to encourage you to break any lie that says you will never be good enough or that it's down to you to get this right. Um, Or, again, I'm just going to keep throwing out scriptures that have been my anchor scriptures through my life. They're so sort of deeply rooted in. Um, in Philippians 1, it says, I pray with joy because of, my partner- because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now, being confident of this, that he who began the work in me will carry on until the day that Jesus returns. It doesn't matter how well I'm doing or how well I'm not doing because my confidence is not in my ability to get it right. My confidence is that as I am partnering with him and yielding to him and listening to him and allowing him to love me and allowing me to scoop me up, he's going to take me to that place of completion. So I just want to encourage you, that's true for you too. He knows exactly. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows what you need. He knows where you're going. He knows the struggles. He knows. But he's going to keep doing it. But it comes from that partnership with him. So my salvation came a point where not only did I believe with my head, because I had, I was going to tell you this, I had gone to an Anglican Sunday school. I had gone to um, a little Bible study prayer group from some Catholic renewal sisters who worked in a hospice just around the corner. I went to a youth club um, I went to, that was Christian from a Bible college. I went to um, little Pentecostal chapels with about seven people in it. I, and then one day I went to a, um, a production, a musical production by some, I suppose, teenagers, um, older teenagers, about the road to Damascus. And I had an experience, one of those things that I couldn't quite rationalize with my head. And it was the road to Damascus. It wasn't a new story to me, but I felt something different to everything I'd heard. And we have words that are buzzwords, don't we, in any given era. But that was an experience. That was an encounter. That was one of those feelings where suddenly I felt, I didn't just know, I felt the love of God. And a journey began where I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew that he saw me. I know that when he died on the cross, he chose to do that for my sake so that I could have a connection with my father in heaven. I could have full access to that. And I was no longer a slave, but I was a son, daughter. So that's where my salvation starts, started. Jesus took my place on the cross. He stripped all the power from Satan over sin and health, death and sickness. He washed, my clean and, uh, washed me clean from my fallen shortness before the Father. He provided me with that identity change. He provided me with an inheritance. I was now seated with him on the right hand of the Father in heavenly places, places of, where the powers and principalities existed. That's, that's where it started for me, but it started there. I didn't have it sorted at that point. And then we started on this transformation journey, sanctification, the Jesus effect. Now, the truth is you can believe in Jesus That's very different to believing like Jesus. So if we believe in Jesus, we listen and we follow him. Now, this is where, watch my lips, basic Christian disciplines, worship, prayer, and Bible reading say, worship, prayer, and Bible reading. These are not shoulds. This is... These are little helpful ways for you to establish your connection. And it's a day, everyday thing. Now, it doesn't mean to say that you are on your knees in a closet with your head. That's the only way you can pray. 
And neither is it, I have got to be sat in a big armchair with a woolly rug over my lap while I read the word. Neither does it mean that you've got to be in some ecclesiastical establishment singing a certain way. But the basic Christian principles are essential for us all if we're to grow and deepen. So I just want to strongly urge you, please, however you do it, every day, pray, worship, and study, read. Just do it. Because... Good stuff in, good stuff out. Trash in, trash out. At this point, I want to burst into my little song that those of you know me well is Trash TV, Trash TV, we all hate Trash TV. Trash TV, Trash TV, we all hate Trash TV. So it's so easy, so easy to put trash in. But we're all doing something every day. Every day we're preoccupied with something. Every day we're feeding ourselves with something. And my poor children had to listen to me singing that song their entire childhood lives. If you see them, bless them, thank them, break things off them if you must. (laughs) But my point is basic Christian discipline. Worship, pray, and read the word. You need it. And this is how that transformation happens. It's a step-by-step journey. It's seeing how Jesus did it with his disciples. Now, we are living in the West. We do have a very strong, prevalent belief that mind is king. And I don't think that's a bad thing, always. But it is where there is no grace and no presence in. And for me... I've walked in Christian circles for so long, well-intended ways of behaving have brought me great things, really good things for which I'm really, really grateful, but it's also brought bondage and guilt and all sorts of things that are really not helpful. And what I really want to sort of talk to you just practically is this transformation of the mind. So if you are like me and you have been a Christian for a while, you will have things that have been handed to you, probably well-intentioned, that told you this is how to do it, this is how you should live your Christian life, this is how you should behave, this is what you should be thinking, this is how you should be responding, this is how you should see things. But I don't believe that's what God wants for you at all. Not at all. I think he just wants to be your friend. And I think he wants you to come straight to him. So, one of my favorite, 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 most helpful scriptures has got to come from Romans 12. And... Sorry? I'm going to do it from the Amplified. So, do not be conformed to this world or this age fashioned after and adapted to its external, superficial customs, but be transformed, changed by the entire renewal of your mind, your head, your little noddle, what goes on between these two ears, by its new ideals and its new attitude, so that you may prove for yourself what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. This is not about somebody else's relationship telling you how you should be. Father God just wants to, just as we were hearing in the worship this morning, he wants, he desperately wants to be with you. He desperately wants to come to you directly. And in that process of being directly, he's going to start transforming the way you see things, the way you feel things. So why is this transformed mind so important? What you believe determines the way you behave and the way you respond. And the bookshelves, if you go into Waterstones or any other book establishment, um, you will find shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves of books that you can see that they're trying to help you understand that in the area of business, the way you think about business is going to affect how you behave and therefore be more successful. Um, But my personal testimony is... um, is that 
a little proverb from 20, Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinks, so he is. What goes on inside what my mum used to call my little noddle, what goes on in here will determine the way I behave, the way I respond. If I believe I'm not worthy, then the way I behave is apologetic and not worthy. And if I believe that my God will do what he says he's going to do, I'm going to behave very, very differently. And I have been, um, I've, I've been on both ends of the spectrum where I felt absolutely shocking and terrible and worthless. And then I've had a situation recently where I heard that a dear friend of mine had got a health diagnosis that was really not good. And I was surprised at myself because what came bursting out from somewhere deep within, from what is very obviously a transformed mind, was, no, this is not right in God's kingdom. And there was like this faith burst out of somewhere that my head would hardly have credited myself for. Because something's gone on in my relationship over recent years, not, oh, this is a really dreadful situation. Oh, Jesus, please, will you do something really nice? There's been an aligning. Something has changed. So I was really encouraged in that moment. Um, And that can be true for you. So um, what goes on in your head and the way that you think really does affect the way that you respond and then the way you behave And that's true for the leadership in this church. We are in the middle of a massive transition in the way that we operate, the way we believe. We don't believe some things the way we used to believe it. It can be mighty uncomfortable and a little bit worrying, but, you know, we're sticking with it. And thank you guys for sticking with us too. Now, this doesn't come from a mind-over-matter approach, that if I think one thing long enough and hard enough, it's going to change things. And it doesn't come from faking it until I've made it. And it doesn't come from denying that I feel or think things or squashing things. And it doesn't come from feeling one thing but saying or claiming something else. Transformation comes from this exposure to something different, which changes the way I think, the way I feel, the way I see it. So your mind will include your thoughts, your feelings, and your will. What I think and believe, i.e. my mind, and become convinced of, which is faith, will motivate my will and my actions and my behavior. And that is my hands, my feet, my voice, my face, my body, the way I live my life. Do you get that? That's how it goes. And the fiercest, fiercest, the largest and fiercest battles that I have faced in my life have not been face to face with other people. And they've not been fought or not fought with other people. And they've not been won or not won with other people. Those battles, I've been fought and won or lost sometimes in here, inside me. And I'm sure that must be the same for you, that your biggest, the biggest battles you face are with yourself, what goes on in your inner world. Now, I don't know about you, but I really do not want to be a non-starter on this journey. I really desperately want to say, God, as it is with you, let it be with me. I want to be your girl That little story of what would Jesus do and the guy who was out turning the place upside down and not behaving the way the social norms. You know, I read that story and thought, I like that. I like that. I like like the fact that that boy was going, this is what Jesus would do, I'm just going to do it. Now, I'm not advocating that you go into any Christian bookstore and turn the place upside down, even if it is inside a church. But you hear what I'm saying. You hear the heart of what I'm saying. So it's not too late for me, and it's not too late for you either. Um, Transformation of this changing heart and mind and action is modeled in the Bible. So we're all on this journey, but if you look in the Bible, back to those disciples, it wasn't just one, one disciple on a transformation journey. It was 12 of them together on a transformation journey. Now, I don't know how you feel when you feel challenged or confused or upset. For me, I'm a raging introvert, and I want to disappear into my hole, think about it long and hard, and when I think I've got it sorted out, I'll come out, then I'll find somebody that I feel knows me, and then I might share, I might share how I really feel. Now, that's, you you can poke me on that one, because actually... My breakthroughs and my transformations come and my connection and my ability to flow with other people comes as I do that transformation journey with friends. 
Now that's really demanding, isn't it? Because I, the way I was raised did not really give me permission to not have it sorted. You were expected to behave a certain way. And if I didn't have the answer, that was not great. So what happens if God challenges me now on a dearly held belief about how Jesus wants me to behave? And you all knew me for years and years and years to hold that belief. And I suddenly have a chat with Jesus. And he really pokes his finger deep into my heart. And I suddenly have a light bulb moment. And I realize for the last 25 years, I've got it wrong. Not just a bit wrong, really wrong. How am I going to respond to that? Especially when people see you and you've been responsible for leading them. And you have to turn around to your church family and say, I am really sorry. I know that we have taught this, shared this, believed this, and we've got it wrong. That's going to rely on some kind of relationship between us for us to not break something very precious at that point. And so Jesus' disciples went through this process of being challenged on everything. But it wasn't just challenging from Jesus, it was challenging from one another. So you can imagine, just trying to think of an example, a fisherman and a tax collector come up with some challenging thought. And the tax collector is going to process it and react in one way, and the fisherman is going to hear it and react and process it in another way. They'll both be very upset because they're having to change. And guess what's going to happen when the two of them come together? It's going to be fireworks. It's going to be a mess. And they're going to go, no, you've got this wrong, and you've got this wrong. So this whole, when you read through the Gospels now, just have a little look. They were all being challenged by Jesus, but they were all doing it together. And they remained friends. How does that work? How does that work? So for us, drawing close to Father God and daring to share, I'm uneasy with this. I don't know what I think about this. I don't know how to approach this. I've always approached it that way. Now I'm not so sure how to do that. How secure are we going to be with Father God and how secure are we going to be one another? And how are we going to allow that transformation to move us all from A to B? And why am I going on and on and on and on and on and on about that? Because I believe in the same way that the disciples together flowed in this transformation and then took the transformation-wise, there was something that was a catalyst with a group of people doing it and then leaking out the reality. So it wasn't just one man. It was 12 men. Sticking with one another, sticking with the process, being vulnerable with one another, allowing themselves to be challenged, allowing themselves to be changed, allowing people to see. I mean, I wonder what the rest of the disciples thought when Peter went and lopped off an ear. That was not cool, dude. That was not the way you should have responded to that. But do you think they all ran away and left him in that moment? I don't think they did. They would all have been rooting for one another. Because by that point, they didn't know which way was up, but they knew who Jesus was. And they would die at that moment to defend him. So I just kind of want to kind of encourage you on in all of that. Skip. What are the pitfalls and where do we all get it wrong? These are some of my mistakes. Tried and failed strategies of transforming or trying to change. Mistake number one, instructed to quote identity truths in the Bible and line up with them. The result from that mistake was I felt hurt, afraid, insecure, hopeless, and untransformed, and even more guilty than I was in the first instance. Mistake number two, focus on your serving with your gifts and abilities and your anointing, or worse still, serve without, without any of those. Now, that kind of took, us, took me into places of influence and some successes in some achievement 
you know, I, I was successful in some, in some things. The result, though, was I felt even more trapped because I was a success in one area and a complete and utter failure in another. So my integrity was totally shot as far as I was concerned. Mistake number three. Having achieved some successes in some areas of life, I then became overcome by the natural feelings and emotions or responses to situations and circumstances that doing that took me. I'd done that, but then I was overwhelmed. The result of that was I felt completely condemned and guilty and unqualified to take any part or form in any kind of victorious living. That was not a good place. Mistake number four. Experiencing criticism, which happens to us all at some point, from one or many, I take it on board. And I did not discover whether there was truth in it or lies in it, and I didn't deal with it. So criticism. And the result of that was, everybody around me thinks that this is true, therefore it must be true. I am a failure, and I've got no power to change it. Now, I have believed and partnered with lies. My identity has been shaken, and my perspectives have been born out of my identity. And I could go on and on and on with the very, very, very many mistakes I have made in this process. Um, but I just want to recap very, very quickly over these are identity issues. There could be ne negative words or experiences that we've all had. I could have been in past teachings or old revelations that were performance orientated. They might have been legalistic. They might not have been relationship orientated. They've led me to places of guilt or failure or shame. There's been wounds and lies, and the result of that has been lockup. It could just have been ignorance. I've not known how to deal with some things. I've not had any access to any truth or teaching or revelation. All I needed to do was get face to face with God and things could change. And I've not really always been taught about coping with the mystery of having two opposing truths from the Bible that seem to contradict one another. I had a great Bible teacher once. His name was George Alexander. It's definitely worth tracking him down. And I always remember the best thing he ever taught me was hold both things in tension. You know that swing sensation that you have? You get hold of one truth there. This must be the truth. And it's like you look over here and there's another one. It's like, oh, help. How does that fit with that? But how to get hold of both things and not polarize yourself to one end or the other, but just hold those things in tension and just be okay with not having all the answers nailed down. So dealing with seemingly opposite truths. Um, something that we're doing in our family right now. I believe that there is no sickness in heaven at all. Yet in our family, we have a family member with a, an inc so far incurable condition. That's not going to stop us from pressing in to see the fullness and healing of God on the earth. Because the truth is, Jesus stormed the gates of hell and stripped the enemy of his power over sicknesses and diseases. And wherever Jesus was, there was healing. So I want you to just think of these questions. How do, you, or how do you connect and relate and encounter God? Do you feel able to approach Father God, Jesus, and Holy Spirit? And what's your relationship like with each of them? What are your FaceTimes like with him? How nitty-gritty and real up and close and personal do you allow each one of those guys to be with you? How honest are you with yourself? Are you scared? Are you apprehensive? Dare you even admit it to yourself? Or better still, to them. What are you believing about you? What are you believing about what God thinks about you? My answers have come from hanging out more with Jesus and Father God. Just having that face time and coming up with truths. That's where the transformations and the exchanges of those lies and negative thoughts and feelings that I've had have come. And that's where my earthly mindsets are being replaced slowly but steadily with a heavenly revelation and an understanding. When I start battling in my mind, I ask myself this question. Where is this coming from? When you're finding yourself struggling, it's ask yourself that question. Where, 
What is the source of this battle? Where is it coming from? And then when I identify something that I might believe in that's not right, my question is, who told me that? Where did I get that from? In Genesis 3.13, you have the story where God is saying to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you're full of shame? Who told you that you weren't good enough? Who told you that it's too late for you? Who told you that you'll never get it right? Who told you that your past is too complicated? Who tells you that what you've been through and what you've experienced in life is too painful, that you're too broken, that your trust has been smashed to bits? Who told you that? You may have been through all of those things, but the truth is, it doesn't end there. It just doesn't end there. And a key to breaking these lies that create these strongholds is breaking off those agreements that you've made that any of those previous comments are true. Break off those agreements. In Romans 4, we hear that God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. He's always living from heaven's reality. So when he looks at you where you're at, you may think and say and feel some things, but you can be sure that when you actually get to listen to him, he's going to be saying, you are precious. You are amazing. You are the hope of glory on this earth. You have got all my hopes and dreams for the people that you are going to encounter in your lifetime. You are my love letter to the world. You have the capacity, the giftings and the anointings to bring kingdom to earth. It comes in your package. It doesn't come in a should package. It comes in a your package. So... Don't live trying to deny what may or may not have happened to you, but do focus on your relationship and connection with Jesus, with Father God and the Holy Spirit, and walk out this process with friends. Get them to pray with you. I'm having a hard time. I'm thinking this. I I know in my head it's not true, but I'm feeling it. And pray with one another. So I just want you, maybe if you want to jump to your feet, if you do a wee stretch. I just want to pray with you. And I'm... Father, we, we know that we're on a journey with you. And we know that your heart is that we know you more and that you want to be with us more. But Father, we just stand together. And with the authority that you've given us, we just break these lies, whatever they are, that say that we're not good enough, that we've missed it, that it's down to us to be perfect. And Father, we just invite you to meet us where we're at. Father, I just ask that you would release your love letter, your love messages, your, your words of hope, your words of courage, your words of strength. Father, would you cause the dreams that you've planted deep within each person here, would you cause them to be watered by your spirit, Father, with your love, with your affection. Father, each single person in this room, Father, would you just whisper that I love you, I see you, I know you, and I know what you need. And Father, would you just open the floodgates of heaven into each life, Father, with words of wisdom, words of encouragement, Father, with healing. And Father, just fresh hope that actually the best is yet to come. Father, we just bless this family right now in Jesus' name.